If you have your Bibles, I wish you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And I want to remind you that this book that we call the Bible is the Word of God. Do you believe that? That means, therefore, that when we read it, it is God speaking to us. It's as though God was standing right here where I am and speaking to you when we read this Bible. This is the Word of God. And that is why when the Bible is exposited, explained, opened, verse by verse, the method that we're using today, that when we do this, then the message is derived from the text itself and not from what I think about the text. That's why it's important for you to have your Bibles open and follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have one, draw near to the person next to you who has a copy and look into the Word. Last time, God, through his word, told us how Paul reprimanded, in fact, how he condemned the Corinthian Christians for causing divisions, splits, cliques, and divisions in the church due to their fighting over who was the better, the better preacher. Paul indicted all of them even those who boasted that they were following Jesus Christ himself. They were all guilty before God for creating discord and divisions in the church. And Paul calls it sin. But then Paul easily moves into a deeply intense description of the nature of biblical preaching. And how the preaching of the word can be diluted and made of none effect by man's attempt to glorify himself rather than the word of God or God himself. And so Paul contrasts the power of the word of God, the power of the gospel, and the weakness of man's wisdom. No matter how powerful or pervasive their speech or oratory is concerned, Paul says, it is nothing when it is compared to the word of God and the preaching of that word. So please now look with me then at verse 18 of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It reads, for, now whenever you see that word in the text, you know right away that a reason is going to be said or stated for what was stated previously. For indicates a reason, the reason why something was said. And so now Paul is going to give the reason why he was not sent to proclaim the gospel in cleverness of speech, because that's what he was talking about before. And he said, I was not sent to preach the gospel in cleverness of speech. First, he said, I was not sent to baptize. We talked about that. Now, he says, I was not sent to preach the gospel in cleverness of speech. Notice, 
He doesn't say I was not sent to preach the gospel, period. Because he was sent to preach the gospel. But he was sent to preach it in a certain way. Here he says, he was not sent to preach the gospel in cleverness of speech. Notice now the next phrase. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Man, this is a tremendous text. Now, the word, word here could be translated message. It's the logos of the cross. It's the full content of the message of God. The word, the logos of the cross. Paul is focusing on the content of the word of God. When he talks about the word of the cross, he's not talking about the rhetoric, the oratory that is involved when one preaches the word. He's preaching about the content of the word. He places content above delivery. He places the message above the messenger. He's saying there is no gospel without the cross. No matter how eloquently it is preached. Paul says this message, this word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In fact, that's the, why, the reason why they are perishing, because they look at the word as foolishness. And notice what Paul says. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He doesn't say the word of the cross is foolishness, period. He says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The reason why they are perishing, I repeat, is because they look at the message, the gospel, as foolishness, and so they reject it. But thankfully, they can still be saved. They are in the process of perishing, but they're not complete yet. The gospel still can, can still be received by them if they would turn to Christ. I say again, the emphasis is on the content of the message, not merely the way or manner in the way it is preached. And I really hope that you get a hold of this and you keep this in mind when you turn on your radio and when you look at your TV. Most people are not looking for content. They're looking at form. They're looking at charisma. They're looking for excitement. Like someone told me, I wonder if she's here. She'll shoot me when I say this. She said, Pastor Lee, you got to put some more oomph in your preaching. See, I don't mind how much oomph we have. If we don't have the core message of the cross in the preaching, it's useless. Paul is implying that the reason why some preachers use their own made-up cleverness of speech when they preach is their attempt to hide or to cover the core content of the gospel. And that, is, and that the gospel is the cross of Christ. And some people don't want to preach blood and death 
and suffering. The cross speaks of shame, humiliation, blood, and death. Some people do not want to hear that. Some members of the Corinthian church thought of themselves as being sophisticated, educated. So for them, the blood and the cross did not fit into their way of life, their way of thinking. The way of the cross, the gospel message is too unsophisticated, too uneducated. And so they reject the message. And when Paul says those who are perishing, he's talking about those who prefer human wisdom of words rather than the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And many people are perishing because of that. They're looking for words that tickle the air or scratch with their itching rather than looking for the word of God itself. Notice the text goes on. But, that's a strong contrast. For gives a reason. But gives a contrast. Giving us something to the opposite of what was said before the but is mentioned. But, the word of the cross, again, the word of the cross is not mentioned in such a way, but the it there refers back to the antecedent, the word of the cross. The word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. Look at the text. Paul is teaching that there are only two kinds of people in this congregation right now. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. That's all. You're either on your way to heaven or you're on your way to hell. And it all has to do with how you treat the message of the cross. The preaching of the cross is the power, the dynamo of God. To those who are on the way of being saved. Being rescued from the final wrath of God. Now, theologically, this tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a medium or agency by which God is preserving or sanctifying the believer until he or she is finally glorified. What is it that keeps us in the way of salvation? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's not doing good works. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same way Paul tells us in Galatians that Jesus Christ sustains this universe by his word, the power of his word. That is the same power that sustains the believer in Jesus Christ as we go towards glory. It's the word of God. It's a dynamo of God. It is that agency which continually to create life within us. That's why we can have abundant life. Because the dynamo of God continues to give us life. Continues, 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 continues. And it will never die away. If it's one dynamo that will never go out, is the power of the word of God. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the dynamo of God unto salvation. In other words, the power of God is within the content of the gospel when it is accurately preached and when it is not hidden by oratory and cleverness of speech. 
That's where we stopped last time. Look at verse 19 now. Paul continues to expand on his explanation concerning the ontos or the nature of the gospel and how it is to be proclaimed. This is a wonderful passage of scripture to teach us about the word of God and what it is. He is proclaiming as a part of the gospel that the message of the cross of Christ is not only the power of God unto salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is also a manifestation of the wisdom of God. It's not only the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is also a manifestation, a demonstration of the wisdom of God. That's why Paul says we dare not pollute or dilute this message which with our own puny efforts to sugarcoat it with our human wisdom or cleverness of speech. As you read the passage, you'll see that the key word in this passage is wisdom. It's mentioned over eight times. And Paul is contrasting the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And he's using speech. In other words, when man tries to demonstrate his wisdom, he uses oratory, flourishing of speech. When God demonstrates his power, he proclaims the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what seems to the world weakness in God's plan of salvation and in its mode of delivery by the apostles, this is really the mighty power of God. And what seems is foolishness because Man's wisdom wants to be demonstrated through his wise words. That's foolishness. And the highest wisdom of God, according to this passage, is his word. The proclamation of the gospel. The cross of Jesus Christ. It's a manifestation of the wisdom of God. And man calls it foolishness. That's why he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As far as the heaven is above the earth, so is my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. That's what he's talking about. The Bible commentary makes an excellent comment. This is what it says. I quote, The message of the cross is the message of self-renunciation, of obedience to God, which may lead, as it did in Jesus' case, to humiliation and death, but which ultimately leads not to self-destruction, but to preservation and exaltation. In other words, true, true followers of Jesus Christ are those who have taken up their cross to follow him. What does that mean? The message of the cross says it means when we take up that cross to follow him, we will face humiliation if we are true to the cross. We will experience suffering if we are true to the cross. But he says that leads the same way it did to Jesus Christ, to glorification. That's the message of the cross. So verse 19 tells us the fact that the gospel would be offensive to human wisdom. And it was prophesied long ago by the prophet Isaiah. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 29, verse 14 of his book. And it's quoted in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise 
And I will set aside the cleverness of the clever. I love that. Now God is the one doing it, mind you. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set apart or set aside the cleverness of the clever. It is God who is the active cause of doing the destroying of these things. God doesn't like anyone to fool around with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him go to hell. That's what he says. That's what it means to let him be anathema, let him be cursed, let him go to hell if he's preaching another gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how important the word of God is. That's why it pains me when I see so few Christians really eager to understand what the word of God says, do not want to study the word. They're just looking for these flourishing preachers to all kinds, but not the real message. Paul then extends a powerful challenge to all would-be, self-made, wise people of the world. We've got plenty of them around. And he's going to show here now that true wisdom has its source and origin. Not in fallen man, but in the living God. We need to learn that today. Because so much emphasis on education and the wisdom of man today. Notice what he says, verse 20. Where is the wise man? That's a general statement. The implication is they ain't none around. That's the implication of the text. Where is the wise man? There ain't none. God has destroyed the wisdom. Where is the scribe? That's the Jew. That's the same answer. Where is the scribe who has greater wisdom than me? There ain't none. Where is the debater of this age? That refers to the Greek, the person who likes rationality, who likes to talk, who likes oratory, who likes to argue and to debate. Where is the debate of this age that can stand up to me? There ain't none. Notice the question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Everything that these people are claiming to be wise, God says the foolishness. They're wise in their own sight but not in the sight of God. Now the best translation for the word world here is age or dispensation or period of time. He's saying God had made foolish the wisdom of the times. You know, we like to talk today about the age of technology. We are in the age where progress is being made. We are in the age that some people are saying, especially the evolutionists, we don't need God. But what Paul is saying here, if, if left on their own, man would not be able to devise or come up with a plan that would save or redeem them. Man just is not wise enough. Left on their own, they're lost. Paul is asking something like this. Did God consult with these wise people when he devised his plan of salvation? No. Could they have ever worked out such a plan of redemption if left to their own wisdom? No. Can they rise to disprove anything that God himself ever said? No. They're trying, but they can never do it. They can never succeed. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world when it comes to redemption, when it comes to salvation. 
is how the New Living Testament puts verse 20. Quote, So, where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world? It's brilliant debaters. God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. I put it to you that this truth is vividly demonstrated today in scientists who defend and project a theory of evolution. God is making their wisdom look like foolishness. They say all you need is time. That's all. As though time was some sort of a thing or person or object. Time cannot do anything. But yet the wise of this world is saying all we need is time and chance. The wind will blow this thing from over there, this thing from over there, that thing from over there, and they'll put him in a puddle and soon you come on. And they're foolish enough to think that people believe it. And people are foolish enough to believe it. That's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 21 now. For since in the wisdom of God, that is keeping up with the wise plan of God, God is now going to explain exactly how he works things out. In the wise plan of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through its wisdom. That's the way God planned it. You cannot find God through your wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe. How? Through the foolishness of the message preached. I love that. It's like a slap in the face. Man cannot come to knowledge of God according to his own wisdom. No matter how much time God gives them to do so. Again I say that demolishes the concept. The idea of evolution. God then reached out to save man through a message that seemed foolish to them. But what was in actuality the vehicle of his saving power? I want you to get the picture. Man is dying. Man is perishing. Hanging on a cliff as it were. And below there is eternity of torment. And here comes the wise people with all kinds of theories. But none has provided a solution. Although stated eloquently with great oratory, with much fanfare and all of that. And then God comes along and offers a foolish suggestion. At least one seemed foolish to them. All you have to do is believe in a man who was crucified on a cross. And you'll be saved. That's foolishness. But that's what God did. It's the power of God unto salvation. You believe that message and the truth contained in that message has a dynamo that saves you from destruction. Paul is actually echoing the words of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 10 verse 21, this is what Jesus says. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus Christ. And said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have... Now, 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 by the way, listen how Jesus is talking to his Father. 
You see the respect? You see the awe? Even in the words of Jesus Christ. Listen to some prayers today. How people pray to God. You'll think that God was their lackey. And he's just on the same level as the way they talk. I mean, they shout and they holler. And they say, it's prayer. Jesus says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now, the words infants, it doesn't mean a little child necessarily, but someone rather who doesn't have too much wisdom. In other words, you could say you haven't revealed it to those who've got PhDs, but you got you reveal it to those who go into kindergarten. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. That's the way God planned it. Now he continues, Paul, in his treatise on the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man in verse twenty two. Notice he said, For indeed Jews ask for a sign. You see, the Jews didn't want to think that much about these things. They didn't want to rationalize anything. They just want to say, that's true, show me. What state is that, the show me state? Missouri. Show me. They don't want to think, they don't want to debate. Just show me. You say it, show me. We have Christians or people like that today. The only way they say they will believe is like they can see signs and miracles and wonders. Not just believe what the word says. The Greeks searched for wisdom. Now these fellas, they wanted to debate. They wanted to rationalize everything. They wanted everything explained and explained away. These were the two major competing religious and philosophical focuses that Paul deals with here. That he had to deal with when he was planting churches, when he was evangelizing. These are the two worldviews that he had to deal with. One who wanted to see signs and wonders. Jesus said to these people, oh evil generation, you always looking for signs and wonders. He condemned them for it. But yet we have some people in the church teaching that the only way the gospel of Jesus Christ can be complete is if you see signs and wonders. The Bible does not teach that. Notice verse 23, the contrast here. It's talking now about Paul's methodology for preaching the gospel. The Jews say, give me a sign. The Greeks say, let's debate. Paul says, but, there's a strong contrast here now. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles or to the Greeks. He says, you could ask for all of these things, but I have been sent to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not through cleverness of speech, but to emphasize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for mankind and was raised again by the power of God. That's the message. You either take it or you reject it. If you reject it, you're on your way to perish. Then he makes an amazing turnaround statement. In verse 24, Christ crucified. We put in crucified because that's the implication of the text. Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Do you get the import of this? 
The very things that the Jews and Greeks were looking for were actually to be found in Jesus Christ if they believed in him. If they believed that he was both the wisdom and the power of God. Everything they were looking for was actually to be found in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. I hope you all are getting this message now. This is the word of God. This Bible is wiser than anything that man could come up with. Any philosophy, any psychology, any doctrine. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God, that's the gospel in this context. In this context, the weakness of God refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. The weakness of God is stronger than men. This one we could preach on for a week. The gospel is stronger than any argument, philosophy that man could come up with. When I'd like to go down each one of some of these philosophies that are taught today. Here's how the New Living Translation puts these verses together. Verse 21, he says, Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So, Paul says, when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. And the Gentile says it's nonsense. But, and I love this, contrast again, to those who are called, those who are called to salvation, big theological thing here, but we won't get into that, those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you get that? The power and the wisdom of God is contained in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 25. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness, that's the gospel, is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Powerful words. God, through the apostle Paul, is trying to show that the only way we can get salvation is if we get it from God. No other way. You can try everything you like. You can give all the money you like to the poor. You could come to church every Sunday. You could come. You could do every, You could pray. You could fast. You could do everything. But if you're doing it to get salvation, it's useless. The source, the origin of salvation is God himself through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That's it. Paul contrasted then the foolishness and weakness with wisdom and power. And so when we get up here and try to preach the word and use all kinds of flourishing words and all kinds of oratory and leave out the gospel message, that shows our weakness. We think it's showing our wisdom and our strength. That's why I forgot, maybe, maybe Terence will remember, they said that a great theologian was on his deathbed. And he says, what is the greatest thing that taught that ever came to your mind as a theologian? 
this great theologian said something like this. They were thinking and talking about, well, I, I learned about predestination and foreknowledge and all of that kind of stuff. He said, the greatest truth I ever learned was, Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it. So now having described the nature of the gospel as contrasted with the wisdom of man in detail, Paul then turns to discuss the people whom God calls through the message of the gospel. He uses the Corinthians, who were mostly slaves and what we call common people, as his example. Notice what he says. And these are fascinating words. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. If Paul was standing here, he would be saying something like this. Folks, think about where you came from. Think about who you are. That's what he's saying, because I'm talking to you now. But when I'm talking to you about the nature of the gospel, I want you to consider the people to whom this gospel came. For instance, you say you are Christians. Well, consider where you came from and who you are. I'm going to ask you to consider the same thing. Paul isn't going to go on now to tell them that if God called them to himself on the basis of wealth, race, or class, he would have passed all of them by. That's what he's saying to the Corinthians. If God would have called you based on wealth and class and prestige and power, you would not be in that plan. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to flesh. Now, I don't know why I'd ever stand up before a congregation and tell a congregation that. Ain't too many wise people here with you all. That's what he's saying. There are not too many wise, not too many mighty, not many noble. Now, that's kind of flattering, eh? Man, you only get no class. You only get no money economically. You, all, you know, you just the edge of society. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying if God called you because of who you were and what you earned in your own life, you would not have been called. But, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's saying, look at yourself. I don't care where you came from. You, probably he's saying to the most of you are slaves. You're being treated as dirt by some of your masters, maybe. God chose you, not your masters. Now, he doesn't mean, I'm not implying that no masters are saved, but he's just using this as an illustration. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised things that are not. So that he might nullify the things that are. Notice that why He might nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one would boast before God. What a powerful message this is. Paul is a shrewd counselor here. He knew that the Corinthians had a problem with pride and being puffed up. We're going to see that in chapter 5. In fact, 
from chapter 11 through chapter 14, that's one of the things he's dealing with. Pride in the Corinthian church. And they're being puffed up. But now he's saying here, don't be impressed with yourself. God is not impressed with your wisdom. He's not impressed with your looks. He's not impressed with your social position. He's not impressed with your color. He's not impressed with your achievements. He's not impressed with your natural heritage. He's not impressed with your financial status. He says, if God were, he wouldn't have called you. In other words, he turns man's criteria upside down. And he chooses... Just the opposite of what man would do. Man says, I'm going to achieve my salvation through what I could do. And of course, you know, the Jews believe if you rich, then God blesses you. God says, no, no, no. You turn that upside down. That's why the so-called health and wealth preachers cannot preach this chapter accurately. Because it condemns them. It slaps them in the face. He turns the criteria upside down. It's not what you can do. It's not who you are. It's not what you earn. No, it's coming to me and realize, God, I am absolutely spiritually bankrupt. I am a sinner. But nobody wants to start from there. Look at verse 30. You are in Christ Jesus. Don't boast about you and who you are. He's going to say, if you're going to boast at all, Boast in Christ. But you are in Christ Jesus by his doing, who became to us. Notice now, he's been talking about wisdom and power and all of that. Now he says, those of us who have Jesus Christ, I want you to know something now. Jesus Christ, the one crucified on the cross, the one who was so humiliated, the one who was made so ashamed, the one who suffered the cross, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who said, I'm a, I'm a little like a worm and no man. This one has become to us wisdom from God. So when we boast of wisdom, we should be boasting of Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom. He is our wisdom from God. He is our righteousness. That's justification. In other words, he is the one who has declared us right before God. He is our sanctification. That has to do with holiness. He is the one. He is our redemption, our glorification. In other words, we have outlined here a complete salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. It's all here. And he's saying a complete salvation is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is crucified nowhere else. So then, just as is it written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't be born into it. We have a family, some of the black and the honest. You could be born in the honored family. You could be born in the black family. You got all the preachers there. But that don't mean that you're born into salvation. You've got to accept Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified for you. 
Jesus is the personification of the wisdom of God as well as the power of God. He is the source of the believer's life in Christ. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All of this has to do with the complete salvation. And all has to do with the wisdom of God. Righteousness focuses on our right standing in the sight of God. Sanctification focuses on Him making us holy. Redemption has to do with our liberation from sin. In the wisdom of God, my friends, the plan of salvation was accomplished by a crucified Christ, hidden from the wise and the learned, but revealed to simple believers from San Salvador and Long Island and Elutra and Cat Island, not to the university professors and everything, but to the lowly. That doesn't mean again that I don't reveal them. I'm just using it for contrast and making a point. The question from Jeremiah 9 verse 24 summarizes Paul's point. Instead of emphasizing the Lord's servants as the Corinthians were doing. Now remember, that's what we're talking about. I want you to see how Paul uses major doctrine to deal with practical problems. He was talking about people who fight in the assembly over preachers. All of this has to do with an answer. And he says, if you're going to boast, don't boast in Paul or Peter or Apollos. Boast in Jesus Christ. Instead of emphasizing the Lord's servants, how they preach or what they've done, we should focus on the Lord Jesus Christ himself and what he has done in providing us wisdom and power and in providing for us a complete salvation from beginning to end. When God starts our redemption, he completes it. Boast in God. That's what he's saying. You do that, you won't have no splits, divisions, or clicks in the church. The point is this. Whenever we have clicks and divisions and schisms in the church, it's because we have taken Jesus Christ from where he should be, and we put ourselves and other preachers there. God forbid that any of us should do that. Let us glory in the fact that we have a complete salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the wisdom and the power of God. Bow with me in prayer, please. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that your word will not return to you void or without profit but it will accomplish the purpose to which you send it today. Grant, we pray, it will find good soil in all of our hearts. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.